morning, Grace Point. It is such a fun time to be here with you guys again, especially since it feels like it hasn't been that long since I was here. So last time I talked a little bit about nakedness, right? Um, spiritual nakedness. And I told y'all that the notion of nakedness has been something on my mind lately. So yay, I'm going to talk about nakedness a little bit again today. Um, and I'm also going to talk about blood and guts, which is why I'm channeling my inner Wednesday Adams, my <laughs> teenage inner Wednesday Adams. If those of you have seen um, the show, it's just so good. Um, so just one fun fact about me, I adore any and all things horror. So any day I get to engage that into my work as a theologian is a good day. Um, but I won't be talking about horror today, although that's an idea for next time. And Josh may never invite me here again, although I don't know where you are, but you love horror too, right? So, hey, maybe we can do a series on that. Um, anyway, it is the final week of Advent. And of course, we're all like, where has the time gone? Um, I'm sure we do every year, at least I do. Next week is Christmas. And so on this final week of Advent, we move from preparation to celebration. We journey from expectation to a sort of arrival, a birth that we've been awaiting symbolically in our reflective theological imaginations. Now, I'll be honest, uh, this Advent season hasn't been very reflective for me, very Advent-y. I, I wrote a little bit about this online, um, and I've noticed that I'm not alone. I've noticed that many folks have expressed something similar. I think many of us are tired this year, we're weary. Uh, COVID isn't officially gone, but much of a life has somewhat resumed. And I think we're still catching up from the last several years of just utter exhaustion. I know for me, I felt like I'm trying to squeeze Advent in, in between all the things. And I don't like having to do that. The last few years, my spouse Taylor and I have tried to live more seasonally. We've tried to be intentional with what and when we eat and sleep and move and trying to align with the rhythms of the earth, the sunset and the sunrise. And we've tried to align our work um, patterns in such a way that it flows well with the days and the seasons. And we're just really overall, like I said, trying to tune in with the earth from which we come. And I will say, it is the absolute hardest to do during winter. Winter is a time when creation slows down. Our animal kin sleeps a little longer, rests a little more. Even the trees take time off from producing. But while creation is taking it easy, our species seems to be busier. This is the season where we are nonstop. We're traveling more and working longer hours to make up for the very limited days we have off for the holidays. We're busy buying things and planning things and hosting and attending. And if we're honest, this goes against our own animal instincts to rest and nourish during the winter months. So we feel tired, burnt out, and it's not entirely our fault. I blame empire. I blame capitalism, which does not equip us for this. 
Our society is not built for seasonal living, especially seasonal resting. And I think many of us feel this angst in our bones. And it doesn't help that we're sold this image of Christmas, the cozy, lounging on the couch, hot chocolate, fuzzy socks, movie marathons. And despite my love for horror, I do love all of that. But really, for many of us and many folks around us, that image is often unattainable. And please hear me if you find yourself in a season right now where you do have the time and the ability, by all means, please soak in every single second of this guilt-free. You do not need my permission, but you have it, all of it. Anyway, trying to be reflective during Advent when I don't feel very reflective, trying to slow down during one of the busiest times of the year has left me feeling not more peace, but more angst, more unease, more of a brooding feeling. And I go back and forth between trying to fight and resist that feeling and just surrendering to it, forcing myself to try and manipulate these emotions of peace, hope, joy, and love while trying to feel those things is not wrong. I'm remembering that the season of Advent in particular The anticipation of Christ is more complex than that. It is precisely a season of expectation, of waiting, of holy wrestling of spiritual angst. It doesn't always feel sweet and comfortable and reflective to be waiting, to be expecting, to be wrestling, to feel angst for what's to come, what should be. So if, like me, you've been feeling this, no, you are not alone, no, are you far off from the complexity of this season? Advent isn't just a time to feel hope, love, joy, and peace, but I think it's a time to struggle with these things, to struggle with what it means to hope, to anticipate it, to struggle with what it means to be joyful, to be expectant of it, to struggle with what it means to have or contend for peace to struggle with what it means to love. And it feels like a struggle, friends, because in many ways, these words, these feelings, these reflections of Advent have been wielded against us by the powerful, right? A superficial hope, a faux peace, a love that doesn't feel like love at all. And this is expected when we are subjects with an empire. You see, empire is all about the facade. It's all about what it looks like on the outside, powerful, mighty, orderly, under control. There is talk of hope, but people, the everyday people, feel hopeless. It looks like there's external peace because the empire has destroyed anything in its wake. Internally, there is no peace. There is only turmoil, poverty, anxiety, unrest. There is no real love because in the Christian empire, we are told that love is tough and love means we hate the sin and not the sinner, right? Whatever that means, love excludes and it doesn't give handouts and keeps people in their places and in their roles. We've been sold an image of love that doesn't feel loving at all. But then we're told it's not the feeling that matters. Well, you know. And this is a tale as old as time. In fact, Jeremiah once said, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say when there is no peace. This is why it feels like a struggle, because it is. 
And so we do just that. We wrestle, we contend, we feel that spiritual angst of what we know it could be because in the words of my friend Andre Henry, Henry, it doesn't have to be this way. And in this, this wrestling, contending, this angst, this is where, friends, I believe we experience a joy and a peace and a love and a hope that surpasses empire. You thought I was going to say understanding. (laughs) One that resists these surface-level, superficial facades, these talks of love, but not the real thing. We reject the way of empire, and we anticipate the divine birthing something new in us, in our world, in our bodies, like Mary in our wombs, physical and spiritual, individual and collective. And so this is who and what I want to focus on today. Mary, the mother of God, the birther of peace and hope and joy and ultimately love. But Mary is a complicated character for several reasons I'll mention. But for one, Protestants love to ignore her and Catholics love to adore her. Raised Cuban Catholic myself, Mary played an interesting role for me. Watching Telemundo, a popular Latinx news station with Abuela, my grandmother, before bed meant that apparitions of Mary flooded the headlines regularly. Nearly every night, we'd come across a new special of a new image of Mary appearing to someone in our community. A Mary-shaped water stain on the side of a house, her image burned on a piece of toast, or frozen still on TV. My entire childhood, I was both amazed and terrified that one day Mary would also appear to me. I didn't know what it meant, what message we were supposed to look for in these apparitions, but I knew that Mary appearing to me would be a great honor, a calling even. Most importantly though, I learned very early on in my childhood that we are to be expectant of the fact that God communicates to God's people. We anticipated God speaking to us even through the most miraculous and ridiculous of ways. And for me, friends, that was strangely comforting. Mary was mysterious, but also accessible, like she could be found literally anywhere. And this was liberating in a sense. Her image, a sign of hope for my people as she was for the indigenous people of Latin America who turned to Mary for strength when empire tried to destroy them physically and spiritually. But while Mary served as liberator in many ways, she also has been used like Jesus, like the Bible, as an object of oppression. You see, colonization convinced Latin American women that in order to have value, they must subscribe to Western ideals like that of the obedient daughter, a good mother and wife, according to European standards. And like most other thinking, this was constructed around a binary, right? For women, this dichotomy was that of virgin or temptress. No in-between, no nuance. And soon, Mary became, for many Latin American women, and I argue for Western women in general, a sort of quasi-woman, a mythical image with no connection to the lived experiences of people, particularly marginalized women. Thus, some argue that patriarchy through colonialism made the symbol of Mary into a machine that simply processes otherness and oppression. The Virgin Mary. 
I saw a funny tweet the other day that said, I wonder if the Virgin Mary was ever like, you can just call me Mary. There's like no need for that first part. <laughs> and it's funny because it's true. Like historically, the image of Mary has been upheld as the ideal woman. Her characteristics and attributes unattainable by most, like her perpetual virginity and her self-sacrifice, often void of agency. Through my research of Mary, I was surprised, or maybe not at all, to learn of how many fights the church got into over things like her virginity. If she lost it or when and how, I mean, really? <laughs> In her domestication, Mary is used as a way to silence women, particularly Latin American women, but I argue all, whose spirituality has been formed on the heels of colonization. You see, the image that's been constructed of Mary, the image that no ordinary woman can identify with has ultimately shamed us for existing as we are real and raw and messy and complicated and complex human beings in the best of ways. But see, the problem isn't just with Mary and the images that have been perpetuated, that we've received. The problem is also about the image or images of Jesus, of God that have been constructed by empire an imperial, victorious, warrior Christ, a white, angry man in the sky, God. And empire is good at constructing these images. Like I mentioned earlier, the faux peace and love, the shallow hope. And again, this angst we feel in our bones is because we've been sold these images and it just does not feel right. So we yearn, we long for the real thing. And Christmas, the season of Advent, is no different. I mentioned earlier, I just mentioned now, how we're sold these images of rest and family and nourishment, and we know it's more complicated than that. But when it comes to the birth of Christ, we're also sold a very specific image, the nativity scene as we're used to seeing it. The image of a perfectly clean and perfectly swaddled Christ, animals lying peacefully by a clean manger, Mary completely dressed and kneeling by the baby, smiling, of course, and I think baby Jesus is like smiling too, and guests and gifts and twinkling stars decorating the scene. It's sweet, isn't it? But of course, it isn't reality. And you might be thinking, oh, you know, it's just a sweet image of Christmas. Come on, don't be so cynical. And I get it. But this seemingly innocuous symbol of the birth of Jesus is par for the course, right? It's an image of empire, and really, I think it does more harm than good. You see, I've often said that the Bible is a book written by men for men. Throughout the centuries, most of its interpreters and preachers have too been men. It's no surprise then that the story of the incarnation, as it's written, one of the greatest moments of our Christian faith, it's no surprise that its renderings and interpretations thereafter would glide over the messy realities in this particular story of pregnancy and labor. Indeed, we're told about the politics requiring Joseph to register in his hometown, about the shepherds keeping watch, about the heavenly host of angels celebrating, but we hear nothing of the blood, the primal groans, the fear, the strength and power of the human body, the nakedness, the first time shrieks of new life bursting into the world, and it matters because, well, it is entirely and fully human. 
And isn't this, friends, what the incarnation is about, about divinity becoming human, about presence, about being here or there in that particular moment in a body? Nowhere else but in this physical, earthly space in the midst of life's fiercest needs and realities. And so to me, it matters. Like, what could an edited story of incarnation possibly say about the sacred? The messages we receive about holiness are that holiness is sterile, antiseptic. We've come to understand the concept of the sacred as uncontaminated from the realities of the real world. And surely the nativity scene plays a role in this. But is this truly the story of Christmas, of divinity entering into our world, our mess, our grief, our sorrows, our joys? Like so many renderings of the narratives in scripture, the birth of Jesus has been domesticated and dulled so that it may seem palatable, <clears throat> excuse me, unoffensive, but there's something subversive, fleshly and carnal about Mary physically birthing God. <clears throat> her role as an active agent in the messy, material, and in the imminent. So let's just paint this picture for a quick second. Months leading up to the birth of God, the skin around Mary's belly would have stretched to hold the weight of her child. What was it like to feel Jesus squirm and settle as he pressed against her organs? She probably got short of breath, had trouble finding a comfortable position at night for sleep. Was she scared? Did she stay up late with anxiety, wondering if she'd survive childbirth as delivery-related deaths were not uncommon in the ancient world? What was it like to birth God? Did she panic like I did as the baby's body began to burst through her? Did she roar and groan her primal animal instincts taking over? How long was she in labor? How strong were her contractions? Did she give birth standing up, squatting on all fours? What was it like for God to suckle at her breast? Did her nipples crack and bleed those early days of breastfeeding? Did tears roll down her cheeks every time Jesus tried to latch? How long did she have postpartum bleeding? Did it hurt to sit? Did her surging hormones make her weepy and sad? Did she have postpartum depression? You see, we talk a lot about Jesus's body being broken for us, but we don't talk enough about how Mary's body was broken for his. And this matters to me, friends, because a broken, refugee, brown, female, naked, stretched, hormonal, marginalized body is how divinity entered this world and where divinity still makes itself known today. I care that God became human, not through a man's sperm, but a woman's womb, writes K.J. Ramsey. She continues, I care that female bodies, disabled bodies, and marginalized bodies continue to be the battleground where much of the church most reduces the story of love into mere words, she says. And I love this. The story of love in marginalized, disabled, female, queer bodies, not just mere words, not just images. 
See, the point isn't the birth itself per se, although it can be. The point is that this is the stuff of our faith, the stuff our faith is made of, the naked, the raw, the human, the body's broken, anxieties, the fears. And while Mary's story turned out the way she'd hoped it would with a newborn child in her arms, not all stories turn out this way. And what the nativity scene as we're used to seeing it fails to show us is that our faith is made of that too. It's made of the grief, the sorrow, the longing, the wishing, the anger. Like the process of birthing, our lives are deeply difficult and deeply beautiful. They are sacred and also profane, spiritual and material. The birth of Jesus, like our lives, was fleshly and carnal and offensive. And it was also holy. And it is in this space where we not only find and experience the divine, but it is in this space where the divine became human and dwelt um, uh, among us. And what does that say about God? Imperial Christianity might try to sell us images of what God is like, of what faith and life and spirituality are supposed to look like, but a close look at the birth of Jesus in its raw, unedited form reminds us that these images are to be rejected and that the angst we feel is a sacred one, one we are not to ignore, but to continue to name, to call out, to shout from the rooftops for our collective liberation. And friends, this is another reason I just love Mary. Not the image, but the one who not only births, but boldly speaks. Not the image of the quiet and submissive Mary, but the one who tells the truth. You see, what precedes her bloody, raw, real, and messy, hard birth are the words of Mary herself. I like to think her words set up what's about to happen just perfectly. And really her words are so subversive, it's no wonder empire tried to turn her into an image of simply obedience and nothing more. I'm sure by now many of you are familiar with Mary's song, The Magnificat, but I'll just read my favorite parts to you. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for God has been mindful of my humble state. God's mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. God has performed mighty deeds with his arm, has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, has brought down rulers from their thrones, has lifted up the humble, has filled the hungry with good things, has sent the rich away empty. Now, this is an unconventional birth announcement, isn't it? It is defiant, prophetic, unsentimental, and in direct opposition to empire. This is the opposite of meek and quiet and submissive and obedient. This birth announcement, like the birth itself, like the bursting forth of incarnation into the world, is fierce, full of strength and fury. It is risky. But when sung with candlelight during Advent services, these words can often be blunted, thought of as symbolic and reflective and comforting, but these words are not lighthearted and spiritual, right? Like they're material, the rich is sent away empty. They're bodily, God has filled the hungry. They're also full of angst and expectation 
and anticipation. And just another detail I love, Mary does this. She tells of God defeating the oppressors as a teenage girl not yet married. This means that her pregnancy does not follow from the proper role of women, putting her in danger as someone who has been making her own choices about her body and sexuality without the regard of her future husband. Can I get an amen? In Luke, Joseph is not consulted, so the decision to have the redemptive child is strictly between Mary and God, which means Jesus is conceived without the help of any man. And again, I think this matters against a culture of patriarchy and toxic masculinity, a culture of empire. It's a powerful detail that speaks to a sacred reclaiming of Mary's own body in one of the most personal and intimate ways. But more than that, Mary's war cry is an expression of revolutionary transformation of an unjust social order, a facade. It is an overturning of power dynamics, a calling forth of God's liberating revolution. Her cry of justice and liberation is one that announces the inauguration of a new kingdom, one that stands in stark contrast to every other kingdom, to empires, past, present, and future that oppress and exploit to achieve what they consider greatness. All the kingdoms that gaslight us by telling us that there's peace, there's hope, there's joy, when there is none of that, even and especially the great Christian one, as we know it in the Western world, that has sold us the images of an imperial Christ. In the words of the late Rachel Held Evans, where the Magnificat Mary declares that God has indeed chosen sides. Amen and amen. Mary has shown us with her Magnificat that her real and raw and fleshly and carnal and bodily birth is what the real thing is supposed to look like. We feel that it's not supposed to be this way. And through Mary, we are shown the way that it ought to be. God has chosen sides and it's not with the powerful, but with the humble. Not with the rich, but with the poor. Not with the mighty kings and rulers, but with the unwed refugee teenage girl entrusted with the holy and messy and bodily task of birthing and nursing and nurturing God. This is the incredible claim of the incarnation. Friends, God has made a home among the very people the world overlooks, the world casts aside, and the very people empire wants to silence and destroy. And in her defiant prayer, Mary, a dark-skinned woman, a religious minority in an occupied land, a marginalized subject of empire, names this reality, not the image, the real thing. And here's my favorite part about Mary's song. In naming this reality, she does something that I think is a guide for us on this journey. Mary calls forth a calling, a tearing down, a scattering, a deconstructing, if you will. But she also calls forth a lifting up, a reconstructing. You see, what I love about Mary is that, this, that she isn't just interested in the first part, the toppling down of the, the proud, the patriarchy. She's also interested in the necessary, beautiful, healing, hard work of rebuilding, of rebirthing something 
better. Friends, I like to think that our angst, our anticipation, our expectation is somewhere between that tearing down and that rebuilding. We don't just deconstruct, we reconstruct too. And the tricky part is that sometimes we're in the midst of the former and sometimes we're in the midst of the latter and sometimes we're somewhere in the middle. But what we see in the incarnation, in the proclaiming, in the birthing is that the entire process is sacred because it is human, it is real, it is life, it is messy, it requires hard and dirty work as I keep mentioning over and over. It requires presence of being here in our bodies, nowhere else but in this this space, in the midst of life's fiercest needs. Sometimes we are broken and bleeding and grieving Sometimes we are rejoicing and resting and hoping. And in this space, we receive a full picture of incarnation, of Emmanuel, of God with us in the terrible and in the beautiful, in the spiritual and in the material, in our bodies, the place where love resides. So friends, this Christmas, Let us keep rejecting the images we are sold. Let us keep resisting an imperial Christianity and together in community with each other, let us embrace the real hope, joy, peace, and ultimately love of Christ. Let us rebuild by looking to the very places empire tells us it cannot be found. And may we do so in all of our offensive and messy and naked and bloody and complex humanity. Thank you.